Amen. As you remain standing, please turn your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1, verse 15. And we're going to go all the way through chapter 2, verse 7. But for the sake of our reading right now, I'll just end at verse 18. Ruth chapter 1, verse 15. Hear now God's word. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. And this is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Well, happy spring day. It didn't feel like that uh, this morning, and it never surprises me. I'm from the East Coast in Virginia, and we had four exact seasons like clockwork. And I remember when I was at Trinity at my seminary years, some 14 years ago, I was preaching at a local church, and we had big windows behind me. Uh, and I stopped in the middle of the sermon. It was in the middle of May, and I said, it's snowing. And everyone looked at me almost with a Chicago accent saying, it's Chicago. <laughs> and from then, I never questioned the fluctuation of the temperatures or weather, and I'm used to it. Praise be to God. Well, what an impactful story and book we are going through in our new series in the book of Ruth. We noted last week that this typically is a book that is seen as a dramatic, romantic love story, but in actuality, it's not a rom-com like Four Weddings and a Funeral, I said last week, but it starts off more like three funerals and a famine. And to summarize, Naomi, this main opening character of the story, if you remember, she has lost her husband and also her two sons to death. And she is left alone with her two daughters-in-laws, figuring out what to do next. Naomi is in Moab. And if we could put the map up for a bit, Moab is uh, east of Judah, but really separated by the Dead Sea. Judah, of course, being part of the Promised Land. And Naomi is an Israelite, and the original audience knows that she's supposed to stay in Judah, even if there is a famine and not venture off into foreign territory, of course, with foreign gods. And you see, that's a pretty long distance to travel. But since there was a famine, the text told us last week, some 10 years ago in Judah, Elimelech, Naomi's late husband, and their two grown sons went away and made this long journey to Moab. And Moab, we noted last week, was a longtime enemy nation of Israel. And we noted that when there was famine back in these days, that, what, what did that mean for God's people? It usually meant temporary judgment from God towards his people for their wayward living and for their sin, for their unbelief, and for unrepentant hearts. And we can surmise that instead of this family staying back to Judah, repenting, calling their families and their clans and, and all the people around them to do the same, what did they do? They packed up instead. And we'll note later in today's passage, probably in pretty good financial situation, and they left this, for this long journey, this foreign excursion, 
some, two, some 10 years ago. But they ended up not just sojourning temporarily during the famine, but the text told us they stayed there for 10 whole years, enduring the deaths of all the male leaders in Naomi's family, which was almost a death sentence some 3,000 years ago for the woman left behind. Now, I can imagine there are more than several people here today that have experienced a season in life where you made a big, life-changing decision like leaving to to Moab against the warnings of trusted family members and loving friends, and then things didn't go really well for you, and you went through that excruciating and anxious return back home where maybe some of you could relate to this. You dreaded to hear the words from close loved ones that, that sentence, we told you so. But Naomi doesn't have many options at this point. She's heard that the Lord is being gracious in the land of Judah. The famine has been lifted. He is showing his favor once again. So she says, what do I have to lose? Maybe it's time to go back home. She doesn't have any options. Perhaps she realizes that not only she needs to return to her homeland, but perhaps she really needs to return to Yahweh, to her God. So she tells her two daughters-in-law, as we, we saw last week, Orpah, Orpah and Ruth, oh, you, you two should stay. You guys are Moabites. You are there remaining in that land. And you don't, you don't want to go on this long, dangerous journey back home with me. She even blesses them. She acknowledges their kindness towards them, uh, uh, towards her. But she realizes that there's nothing for these foreign women in the land of Judah. You could take off, take down the map. But Oprah understands and leaves for her home. But Ruth, at the end of last week's text in, in verse 14, Ruth clung to Naomi and she refused to go. It's remarkable where we left off last week. And we noted some main terms invoked in chapter one. The word, uh, the most important word for loving kindness, often we said used to speak of God's covenant love towards his people, that Hebrew word hesed. But we saw that Ruth's clinging to Naomi, despite all the dangers that lie ahead, reminds us of God's eternal clinging unto us. We noted at the conclusion last week, whether we have weak or strong faith, he clings to us. What good news that nothing could ever separate us from the love of God. Yes, Ruth, this foreign Moabite, ironically pictures to the Jewish audience reading this the grace of their God, Yahweh, because this is the book of redemption. This is a book for people that have set their hopes and dreams on great expectations for their lives, only to have them see life go abruptly wayward. Perhaps that's you here today. This is a book for those who have not yet experienced tragedy or things going upside down in life. And to prepare you for the future questions that will remain, can God still redeem me? Even after the, all the horrible things that can happen in a sinful world just, uh, full of sinful people, can God still renew what others in the world might consider rather horribly damaged goods? Can God save people that we would never expect to be converted unto Christ? And Naomi at this point is, is one we look on with compassion, confusion, and sympathy, and we can almost just hear her thoughts audibly, all these questions 
unto the Lord. But she seems at the end of the rope here, and she doesn't realize yet that God still has a plan. And for us streaming or those here physically present today, God still has a sovereign plan for all those that will trust in him by faith, this gift of faith, those remaining here today. And so for today's passage, uh, it could be organized into three main scenes that involve the book's three main characters. And so this allows us some easy headings, and I'll repeat them as we go, as I do every week. The three headings are Ruth's unexpected conversion, and the second scene will be Naomi's new disposition, and the final scene today, going to the end of chapter 2, verse 7, the providential introduction of Boaz. So the three main characters will be in today's text, Ruth's unexpected conversion, Naomi's new disposition, and finally, the providential introduction of Boaz. So please look at that text that I read earlier in verse 15 through 18. Our first scene is Ruth's unexpected conversion. Verse 15 says, And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. And we said this last week. In just chapter 1, we see this term return um, mentioned at least 12 times, just over and over, this concept of returning. Now, this is really important, verse 15. Sure, there'll, there'll be way more opportunities for Orpah and Ruth if they just stay in their homeland. They're young. They still have time to start over, so to say, especially in that ancient context. But Naomi makes a specific point that Orpah is not only going back to her people, but what does it say in the text? To her gods. Now, scholars note that the regional deity worshipped that time in Moab was called Chemosh, C-H-E-M-O-S-H, Chemosh. But Ruth doesn't want to worship Chemosh anymore. She is turning to Yahweh and even invokes his name in today's text. And notably, a scholar, Mary Hannah, notes, not Chemosh's name, but the name of Almighty God, Yahweh. Look again in 16 to 17, but Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. If this sounds familiar, it's, it's because this is what God would say to his own people. Remember what God said to Moses in Exodus 6 verse 7. God says, Moses, tell this to the, uh, the Hebrews, I will, uh, these Israelites, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And then repeated after the Exodus event, it's the same language God uses in Leviticus 26, verse 12. Ruth is basically saying, let this God who has covenanted with the people be my God too. And so out of her immense loyalty to Naomi, Ruth is converted to the covenant-making God, Yahweh, and is essentially going all in. I mean, every, the, the words might not, if you unpack it, well, just if you just glance at it, it's a very short kind of text. Robin, how can you say that she's just going all in? But it's seriously, everything from A to Z is committed to be with Naomi and her God by making that declaration. Because one scholar knows that Ruth's name sounds very similar to the Hebrew word for friend, and he therefore says that Ruth's actions epitomize 
covenant friendship, today's sermon title. Ruth is saying, I'm going all in to this covenant God and my commitment in covenant to you, Naomi. That's covenant loyalty. This is an all-in thing, especially when we discover what are the prospects for Ruth going into, to her, a foreign land. And so we have a contrast of sorts here. If we could just kind of rewind a little bit. First, years ago, Elimelech and Naomi left the promised land of Judah for a better situation, not trusting in Yahweh during the famine, but they looked for a solution in a foreign land almost uh, amongst foreign gods. It's almost like I, I need something to replace you, Yahweh, and so I'm going to chase after a different thing. I've tried to have my fill. I thought I was full, but then I realized idols and false gods never satisfy. We'll compare that to Ruth, who in an extraordinary way is turning toward the God of Israel as a foreigner, refusing to remain in the land of false gods, but really just probably better prospects but to return with Naomi to the land promised by Naomi's true God. One theologian notes that it's usually the Israelites, <laughs> if, we, if we read through the Bible stories, it's usually the Israelites that go to a foreign land and simply add on to their God all these foreign deities. We certainly see that in the book of Judges, just preceding the book of Ruth. But Ruth exemplifies a total forsaking. This is why I'm saying she's all in a total forsaking of her old ways, including her false gods, and is embracing the one true God, the covenant-making and faithful God, but she is not just adding on. She's saying away from the old and on with the new. But this is why Sinclair Ferguson calls this a surprising conversion. Who is this outsider making such a strong commitment to someone else's God when their future looks bleak, when the easier route was to stay in her territory and start all over. But remember, we just finished a series for several months in 1 Thessalonians. If you remember to this new upstart church, Paul commends the recent converts in Thessalonica, and he says, oh, how they have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. It's the same for the Old Testament and the New Testament when you are struck by the grace of God, the spiritual, supernatural intervention of God. There is no turning back. There is only moving forward with the Lord in true faith. And there is a definite break from your old idols. Of course, it's not perfect living. There's struggles, there's ups and downs, but the trajectory is saying we are going towards you, Lord. And so the only explanation of Ruth's unexpected, surprising conversion is their intervening and irresistible grace of God. Because no person, no matter how noble we might think Ruth is in the story, no person could naturally do this on their own. Some of you have testimonies exactly like that. Robin, if it wasn't for the intervening, irresistible grace of God, I would never have never have never turned to him and so picking up again in Ruth uh, chapter 1, verse 17, it says, May the Lord do so to me, and more also if anything but death parts, from, uh, parts me from you. Do you remember Naomi 
Last week to her daughter-in-law, she said, may the Lord deal kindly with you. Basically translated as may the Lord do hesed or do loving kindness to you. Ruth now invokes the same name, capital L-O-R-D, and declares a solemn oath before Naomi. Boaz later hears this and later in this story calls the extraordinary move of Ruth to Naomi, he calls it hesed, that word again. He said, Ruth showed Naomi hesed, loving kindness. And so finally Naomi gives up, verse 18. Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her. She said, no more. So there ends the first scene, Ruth's unexpected conversion, in a way foreshadowing to us 3,000 years later to the Gentiles' inclusion into his covenant promises. But before we go on, isn't covenant friendship such a lovely and encouraging concept, especially in light of the world, the fallen world that we live in? That we are not just some random group of disinterested people here, a random group of people just singing some songs together, listening to the same sermon before moving back to our normal individual lives, disconnected and aloof of one another. Yes, we serve a God who is a covenant-making and faithful God, but who also calls us into covenant community with one another, all of us who are called by grace, to then do what? To then show loving kindness towards one another, not just as God has showed hesed, loving kindness, towards us. And I think that is such an attractive message to proclaim to a weary, lost world. Because in our day and age, Christianity has become more solo, more distant. Christianity today is more apart instead of being set apart. Christianity today is disinterested instead of practicing all the one another's we find in the scriptures. And as we slowly and hopefully, we pray, fully transition out of the pandemic, perhaps this is an opportune time to say, Lord, help us recommit ourselves to covenant friendships, to you, a covenant God. And may that be attractive to a lost, weary, sad world and practice our care and love for one another as we immerse ourselves more and more in the hope and love we find in the perfect love of Jesus. That's a a wonderful way to pray in our moment in history. Now to our second scene, our second heading, Naomi's new disposition. Naomi's new disposition. And we'll pick it up in verse 19 through 22 in chapter 1. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty, which means all-powerful God? has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Naomi, friends, like last week's passage, is bent on a theological point at this time in her life, a point of view that the Lord is out against her. 
and that this is why she has fallen to such hardship and calamity. Naomi in Hebrew means pleasant or sweet, but now she wants to be called Mara, the Hebrew word for bitter. Now, if you go away for 10 years and travel back to see old friends here at Westminster Presbyterian Church, there shouldn't be any confusion as to who you are, right? I see this all the time since my little over a year here, where I'm like, who are these newcomers? Oh, they're obviously not newcomers. They're embracing people with such affection and love. Members who come back from a visit, they moved away to a different state, and they're coming back. There's no confusion. I say, is that you, Mark? Or is that you, Jane? No, there's an immediate embrace. But for Naomi, the narrator said that she went away full 10 years ago, but has now returned empty. Why couldn't Bethlehemites recognize her? Well, perhaps her face, perhaps her posture, perhaps the expression of lament, of looking worn out, defeated, with the, the look one has when they're barely surviving. Naomi has come back with a new disposition, a new outlook on life, and it's very depressing. And the word to describe the outlook, of course, is called Mara, bitter. Now, the narrator makes sure to remind us that Ruth is a Moabite, again, in verse 22. The narrator keeps saying this is the Moabite woman, a constant reminder that Ruth is not one of them. She is an outsider. And so this section closes with a note that this is, the, this is the beginning of the barley harvest season. This is actually significant for a variety of reasons as Naomi has come back home. Barley was a main staple food for Israelites in the Old Testament. It was harvested before wheat, which came later. Barley was used in breads and barley cakes that could be used for livestock, but was a pivotal grain in the history of the Israelites for the poor. So the barley harvesting season began around March or April, right around our season now, but was a time when the poor could be attended to. So that's good news for Naomi and Ruth, who presumably have been malnourished in their journey and poverty. And as one scholar notes, the barley harvest was a jubilant point on the calendar. It was a time to celebrate. It was a time to rejoice before God, all his provisions, and hoping to find the Lord's favor. Perhaps this was the time Naomi and Ruth can find this favor too, you could imagine them thinking. You see, in God's timing of all things, and again, as we were reminded from our catechism earlier, in the Lord's powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions, you're never out for the count. And Naomi, hopefully, even though in her bitterness, she should start to be aware of this. What Paul, thousands of years later, would say a thousand years later would say in 2 Corinthians 4, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Christianity is not about being a better person than the person down the street and feeling good about that or for someone that made all the right decisions in life and perfection and isn't just life just great. But actually, Christianity is about hope for the weak. Christianity is about hope for the lost and stranded. Christianity is hope for the weary and downtrodden. Hope for the sinner who has gone astray and wants to return home. Naomi has returned physically, but not yet spiritually. But the Lord's kindness will be seen 
in an unmistakable way in the coming pages for, for Naomi and Ruth. Now finally to our third and last scene, we are introduced to a new character, the providential introduction of Boaz. And we'll read from chapter two, verse one through seven, if you look at your Bibles. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. You see, the narrator grants us three descriptions of a new and important character in the book of Ruth. His name is Boaz. And the three identifiers is that he's related to, number one, Elimelech, Naomi's late husband. That means he's a, he's a relative, and then that's going to be unpacked next week in, in coming sermons about the significance of that 3,000 years ago. Number two is he's described as a worthy man. That could simply signify a man of means, of wealth, of good stature, someone who is strong, or more probably, someone who had good standing and stature in society, as we saw how the people treated him with dignity in the fields. And then finally, number three, Boaz is from the same clan as Elimelech was, the uh, Ephrathites from Bethlehem. And I guess we can add another, although somewhat indirectly, we can identify Boaz as a God-fearing man. Boaz, who labors and oversees his workers while invoking the name of the of Yahweh to bless them, and in turn they return the blessing, the Lord be with you, the Lord bless you. As one theologian writes, this exhibited godly leadership in a gracious environment to work in. We're starting to learn more and be set up about the character of Boaz. Now the narrator calls Ruth the Moabite again to remind us that there's not much natural hope for someone like Ruth, a foreigner, to thrive. But she takes the initiative to go out and glean amongst Boaz's fields. Scholars hopefully note some of the, they helpfully note some of the background. I was learning about this, but if you know, look at your text here. In chapter 2, the word for glean comes up around 12 times. And for us, in our modern day context, we don't understand what that means. But gleaning was those who would go after the initial harvest, harvesters who would reap in the fields. And whatever is left over, you could glean from. The leftovers, so to say, were then allowed to be gathered by widows, those who were fatherless, and even resident aliens. God's laws actually dictated this in Deuteronomy 24. Farmers were actually prohibited in returning. Like, oh, we missed a good amount. But they were prohibited in returning to gather more. So that what? So that the poor could have food and gather. I thought that was really helpful and really compassionate. Now, since we're stopping right at verse 7, I want to explain what is happening behind the scenes. Later, we'll hear that Boaz exhibits favor towards Ruth because of her undying loyalty and devotion to Naomi. Remember, he calls it hesed. 
But as we see in this part of the story, the sad story of Naomi and Ruth has already spread among the region, and so Boaz will know this, and he already knows this, and he will show godly compassion amidst their tragic story. This is not just, hey, who's that pretty lady in the field? He knows of the background of the story of Naomi and Ruth. And so this is a dramatic shift in the story. Boaz will play a most important role in the redemption of both these women, but especially for Ruth. But months before, Naomi and Ruth, if you could just imagine for a moment, they couldn't have ever imagined a change in favor was coming upon their weary lives. But yes, this is a love story. Yes, you're going to have to come back and hear what happens next. But as we've been alluding to, this is more so about a divine love story, about God's covenant love towards his people. And so as we kind of move towards wrapping up, how do we connect the story of Ruth thus far to ours? Well, number one is this. Ruth exhibits and pictures what faith in Christ really looks like. She really, truly is a great model and picture of what faith in God really looks like. She exhibited a complete, utter trust in God to be her God and Lord, no matter what would come, come what may. Ruth didn't say to Naomi, your God will be my God, because if I believe in your God, everything is just going to return to be just wonderful and great, and we're going to be full again, and I won't ever have to suffer again. That wasn't the story. No, she said, your God will be my God, even not having any idea what suffering or hardships are going to come, I completely place my trust in your God. That is utter and complete trust. That is faith. And so for the Christian to trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, the Bible guarantees salvation, peace, forgiveness of sins, a divine reconciliation to our Heavenly Father, but not necessarily an easy and comfortable life, which is our culture's idol, not free of hardships or even disappointments. And so for Ruth, she knew the hard road ahead, but yet she still believed. Is that true for us today? Oh, there are so many different things that you could watch on TV or stream online of gospel presentations turning into, oh, you scratch God's back and he'll scratch yours. You, you believe in him, and he's going to give you wonderful health and finances. But for Ruth, she's prefiguring for us what it looks like to just completely throw yourself to the Lord, come what may. And that's to a very basic level, the same for any Christian that believes upon him. I'm going to trust, and I'm going to rest, not in how my life ends up, but in the finished work of my Savior, Jesus. Number two, the theme of coming home points to a spiritual and eternal reality. The theme of coming home points to a spiritual and eternal reality. Naomi's return to her homeland, even if she is still filled with grief and bitterness, implicitly reminds us of not any temporary refuge on earth, but a true resting place, a place without sickness and death, a place without tears and tragedies and pain, or suffering, a place of final rest. So Naomi is coming to a physical promised land, but for all those that trust in the Lord alone for salvation will enter 
what this is prefiguring, the heavenly and spiritual and eternal promised land, not just temporarily, but forever. What was going on through Naomi's mind at this juncture? She, has no, she had no idea that a return to Judah is pointing to us some 3,000 years later, a spiritual promise that is only for those that find their faith in the Savior Christ alone. And as we touched on last week, Naomi's own daughter-in-law, Ruth, will eventually become the ancestor of Jesus himself. She had no idea at this point what was to be. But her coming home is picturing the true return home. And finally, number three, the providential introduction of the character Boaz will eventually be identified as their lowercase redeemer, will provide the breadcrumbs to discover the path for our hope in discovering and panting for our greater Boaz, the great redeemer in Christ Jesus. And so in conclusion, then, I'll borrow from what Sinclair Ferguson wrote about in this chapter, that in the unfolding scenes in these first two chapters, we are starting to see the signature of God written in between the lines. I've, I've said here a couple of times, I, growing up, I used to love collecting baseball cards. I would study and memorize all the stats in the back. Sometimes they would copy their autographs, and sometimes I would go to ball games, and they would sign my glove, and I would just sit at home, and no one was allowed to touch the glove, and I would just stare at it and memorize it and try to copy it. And all these famous athletes had such lavish, sweeping signatures that I would marvel at. And that eventually your favorite players, you could tell their signatures, their handwriting. Well, Naomi and Ruth might not notice at this point, but we are starting to recognize the hand of God. And so are you like Naomi right now and not noticing God's signature in your life? And I'll be the first one to admit, sometimes it's hard to see. Sometimes you get lost in life and burdens and you say, like the psalmist do, where, where are you, God? Where are you? And are you like the ancient audience, though, that is raising their hands at this point when it's being read to them and piecing the bits of the puzzle together and to cry out, wait, I'm seeing the Lord of grace and mercy at work here. For those that are feeling lost, weary, unmotivated, spiritually dry, perhaps wayward, astray because of sin or weakening of faith, the story is already telling us, come home. The book of Ruth is already urging us, come home to the Lord. Return to the gracious Heavenly Father through the finished work of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Whatever you're going through, it is always good to, set, to respond to the invitation, come home. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the promise in Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion till the day of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So for all those of us who are feeling like we're wandering or distant, Lord, may we return to you. May we repent and continue to believe. Perhaps some of us streaming here or here in person has never placed their trust like Ruth did to you, O oh God. And so, Lord, I pray that you would save them in this holy hour. 
but for all of us who might feel dry and lost and being pulled in so many different directions because of the circumstances of life or because of our giving into temptation, may we come home to you, gracious Heavenly Father. May we be restored. May there be healing in our community of faith. May faith be restored in our loving Savior, Jesus Christ. And in the end, may this all be, even in the journey, be for your glory alone. Oh, thank you for this wonderful invitation to come home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.